Chosen from among all others by the immortal elders Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, Mercury, Billy Batson and his mentor travel the highways and byways of the land on a never-ending mission to right wrongs, to develop understanding, and to seek justice for all. In time of dire need, young Billy has been granted the power by the immortals to summon awesome forces at the utterance of a single word. A word which transforms him in a flash into the mightiest of mortal beings, Captain Marvel. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Reggie's Comic Stories. You can find us, me here every other Wednesday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to me over at iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are stretching out. Today I've got an essay by C.C. Beck, the creator or co-creator of uh, Captain Marvel. This appeared in a book called Streetwise, which came out in 2000 by Tomorrow's Publishing, edited by John B. Cook and John Morrow. Uh, if you have not seen this book, I strongly recommend you go find a copy. They're not too... They're not too easy to find, but they're not that expensive when you do find them. Uh, It's a collection of essays and especially comics work by creators uh, giving autobiographical stories. Uh, In C.C. Beck's case, he gave an entire long-form essay, not just about his life, but about his feelings about a variety of subjects, and I think it's really entertaining. He also did illustrate it, and uh, you're going to have to find the book to see the illustrations, but... um, they're not germane to the uh, text. So all I'm going to say about him is that Charles Clarence Beck was born June 8, 1910 in Zumbrota, Minnesota. And I will let C.C. Beck take it away with his uh, essay titled Preacher's Son. I found out early on that being a preacher's son had set me apart from the other boys in Zumbrota, the small, old-fashioned Minnesota town where I was born in 1910. My father was a Lutheran missionary minister, and my mother was a teacher. In those days, professional men, especially preachers, were regarded as somehow superior to other people and were feared, sometimes hated. While we were avoided by most people, my family was closely watched at all times. Like my two sisters before me, I was quiet, studious, and always at the head of my class. At an early stage, and when I began to show some talent as an artist, My teachers and family were quite pleased, but the townspeople all nodded their heads. Just what you'd expect from a preacher's son, they said. Preacher's sons will always turn out bad. He'll probably go to Paris and live in an attic, drink liquor, smoke, and hang around with naked models. Artists are all no good bums. Everybody knows that. When I was 15, me, my father and mother, and younger brother moved to another small town, West Bend, Wisconsin. My older sisters were now on their own. I finished high school at West Bend, but I was spared being the valedictorian, as my grades were considered to be unfair competition for students who had spent their lives in West Bend. I was therefore not mentioned on the honor roll, and I didn't even take part in the graduation ceremonies. After high school, while washing dishes and waiting on tables during the first of my many restaurant jobs, my father and mother decided to send me to art school in nearby Chicago but not before some other fellow preachers advised my father otherwise. He'll never make a living as an artist, they said. 
Get him a good job where he'll get a good salary and be a normal human being was their advice. Who knows better than a preacher what it's like to live in poverty and be avoided by everyone? An artist's life is even worse. Let him study accounting instead, or even the restaurant business. Forget this artist foolishness. My father compromised. He took me to Chicago and enrolled me into the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts. After enrolling, he got me a job at a nearby restaurant. Good, said the other preachers. Your son, Charles Clarence, is showing signs of becoming a worthless bum, but at least you won't have to feed him while he's wasting time studying art. Prior to going to school in Chicago, my art training consisted of studying books as a child and as a teen. I took correspondence courses in art, commercial art. In Chicago, I studied art, composition, anatomy, design, techniques, and media, history of art, costuming, lighting, draperies, and so on. I didn't study cartooning. I became a cartoonist much later, but I'd already spent half my life learning the basics. It was 1928 and prosperity was everywhere in Chicago. Capone was running the cities. Gangsters were merrily killing each other in, in the streets, and everybody was making money. After just a year of art school, I got a job at a lampshade factory drawing comic strip characters onto lampshades. I made more money than my father ever had. While I was in Chicago, I met other artists, people who would have been ridden out of town on a rail back where I grew up. These people wore strange clothes, spoke in strange accents, and needed haircuts. These people became my friends. With the stock market crash of 1929, I lost my job at the lampshade factory and went to work at the art studio of Norman Mingo at $10 a week, which was a starvation salary even then. I cleaned pallets, ran errands, and swept up around the studio. Times got harder. Bankers and stockbrokers actually jumped out of high windows or blew their own heads off. Mingo closed his studio and moved to New York. I had become penniless, just as my father's fellow preachers had predicted. I moved back to live with my parents, who were now in Minneapolis. During the Depression, I enrolled at the University of Minnesota and studied art. At the age of 23, after four years of looking for work and still living with my parents, I got a job at a locally owned publishing company, Fawcett Publications, through a minister friend of the family. He knew some people at Fawcett and he got me an interview at their offices. I showed them my art samples and they liked them, but I wasn't hired right away. It took a few months after two of Fawcett's cartoonists quit to go on their own when I was finally hired to replace both of them at a pitiful $27.50 a week. I moved with the company in 1936. At first I worked in Greenwich, Connecticut, then the company moved our department to New York. Our offices were in the Paramount Theater building on Broadway. When Frank Sinatra made his debut there, we could hear the girls screaming all the way up on the 18th floor. I was Fawcett's only staff artist at the time, creating both cartoons and straight illustrations for various humor, detective, and movie magazines. Very few illustrators are good cartoonists, but all cartoonists are illustrators. They just illustrate funny things. Illustrators, the ones who call themselves such, are dignified, rather pompous sorts who would die of mortification if anyone laughed at their work. Cartoonists have a sense of humor, love to hear laughter, and are never ashamed of being called lousy artists and idiots. Most of, our, most of us are both, but we're damn fine illustrators. To me, nothing is more funny than stodgy, self-satisfied people with good jobs and respectable positions. I seldom have, ha have had either one. 
The story of the birth of the golden career of Captain Marvel has been told and retold. Often it has been mistold by writers who didn't get the facts straight or who wanted to prove something or another. The true story is quite simple. I was now almost 30 years old. The humor magazines I had been working on the past few years, such as Captain Billy's Whizbang, were on their last legs already dead, so Fawcett decided to begin publishing a line of the new popular magazines called Comic Books. Bill Parker, a staff editor and writer, was given the job of creating a line of comic characters, and I was given the job of illustrating the characters. Parker was very talented, sincere, and hardworking, but also delightfully easygoing. While knowing little about comic books, Parker and I were professional men who knew how to write and illustrate. We did not need to study comic books that were already on the market. In fact, Parker had only seen one or two of them before. He was so disgusted by their crudity that he told me he almost threw up. He therefore wrote stories based on old tales of magic, westerns, detective themes, and others. His stories in the first issue of Wiz Comics confirmed his skill as a writer. I had grown up reading Barney Google, The Cats and Jammer Kids, Little Orphan Annie, and other influential cartoon strips. When I was assigned to draw comic books for Fawcett, I decided the proper thing for me to do was use an expressive cartoon comic style. Wiz Comics, Fawcett's first comic book, was a big hit, and Fawcett decided to go ahead with other publications of the same kind. The editorial department was expanded by hiring established writers and editors to assist Parker. Among these people were Rod Reed, Joel Mill Millard, Manly Wade Wellman, Otto Binder, and many others with wide experience not in comics but in science fiction, detective stories, and other fields. Among the established artists who came to Fawcett as their line of comics expanded during the next couple of years were Pete Costanza, Mark Swayze, and Ed Robbins. We paid little or no attention to what other comic book publishers might have been doing. We didn't need to. Inside a year or two, Fawcett Comics were leading the pack. The golden age of comics was a hectic time. We worked long hours and never knew what went on in the editorial department. Artists were not consulted or asked for advice at Fawcett. What do those dumb artists know anyway, was the general feeling. They're all a bunch of idiots. And besides, they're all rotten artists, one writer put it. Look what they did to my beautiful story. People will laugh at it. And laugh people did. At the Captain Marvel stories. I had surrounded myself with people of my own sort, happy, devil-may-care characters who loved to joke, sing rowdy songs, and enjoy life. These were the people who made Captain Marvel the biggest seller in the business, and after Fawcett saw the sales reports, they left things pretty much alone in the comic department. New York was a happy, vibrant city in the 40s. People would walk the streets at all hours without fear. We artists used to gather at a different, different ethnic restaurant or nightclub each week for food, drink, and joyful companionship. Most of us were in our 20s or early 30s. No doubt there were muggers or crooks lurking about, but we weren't aware of them. Often we would wander from one place to another at 2 o'clock in the morning, singing and having a grand time. In those days before air conditioning, people actually slept on the grass in Central Park on sweltering summer nights. We artists and writers who were married had weekly parties in our homes, each couple taking turn and entertaining the others. Those were the days when home bars were well-stocked and music and dancing became spontaneous, home-talent affairs. Both writer Otto Binder and editor Wendell Crowley played accordions, and Kurt Schaffenberger played a push-button squeeze box. Otto's wife, Ioni, 
played the piano, and my wife and I played guitars. Otto was one of the short, round people who really run the world, as he used to put it. He was completely average and normal-looking and perfectly conventional in his habits and beliefs. However, he was perhaps the most wildly imaginative and creative writer ever to work in science fiction and comics. Every New Year's Eve, Otto would bring a horribly corny, gagged-up skit he had written for us to enact, without rehearsal, wearing homemade costumes. Jack Binder, Otto's outspoken brother, would be off in a corner arguing with somebody. Bulletman artist Pete Riss would be tending the bar. Although a horrible war was going on, it was far away. The Great Depression was only a few years in the past. We had all been out of work in the 30s, and we were so happy to be getting paid for at last doing work that we loved that none of us complained about the low salaries. If our publisher Fawcett was getting rich, so much the better. Publishers were supposed to get rich. Artists and writers weren't. Most of the editors and writers agreed with my view that Captain Marvel was a comic character, not a serious, sober-sided do-gooder with impossible powers. When I illustrated Captain Marvel, I never drew him as a superhero. In fact, he was usually not even the hero of the stories he appeared in. Fourteen-year-old Billy Batson was. It was Billy who had exciting adventures, got into various scrapes, who got hit on the head and was tied up and gagged and thrown off cliffs. Captain Marvel was just a guy who got Billy out of those jams, much in the same way as the United States Cavalry came to the rescue of the hero in the old Western stories. Captain Marvel was different than other costumed heroes. His story about a little boy who was given a magic word is an old device in literature. Parker and I had the same simple desire to write and draw a comic book story that would appeal to children. I have always felt that children are much more intelligent and discriminating than publishers give them credit for. In superhero comics, the drawings are so overdone that the stories, if there are any, are overshadowed. Parker and I spent weeks working out the characters for the stories in Wiz Comics. I drew whatever he specified. I did not try to dazzle anyone with techniques or try to astound the viewer with, a st- with startling perspectives and flashy poses. In the first issue of Wiz Comics, I drew the Captain Marvel, Ibis the Invincible, and Spy Smasher stories, while other artists handled the rest. Editorial director Ralph Daig decided suggested I give Captain Marvel the profile of actor Fred McMurray. I drew Captain Marvel like a husky, well-proportioned, healthy young athlete. He did not have typical superhero features such as tremendous chests and bulging thighs. His costume was that of an operetta-style military officer. Tight pants, a sash, officer's boots, and a short gold-trimmed cape flung over his shoulder. I had also put many of Fawcett's other characters into visual form for the first time on my drawing board, including Captain Marvel Jr., Bullet Man, Radar, and other heroes and villains. They were then handed out to other artists to draw. Because of the growing amount of comic titles being added to Fawcett's lineup, they had to farm out some early Captain Marvel adventure stories to freelance artists. The results were awful. The drawings were typical superhero-type artwork with arms and legs sticking out of panels, lots of tricky perspectives, and no attention paid to composition, anatomy, or storytelling. Other publishers began trying to hire me away from Fawcett at a salary two or three times what I was getting. Fawcett decided to put all the Captain Marvel artwork under my supervision. I was moved out of Fawcett's art department and put into my own studio in Englewood, New Jersey, taking with me Pete Costanza and other top artists, and hiring others later. 
They gave me the name credit as chief artist and an enormous, in those days, page rate of $50. Besides Captain Marvel artwork, the Beck Costanza studio also handled some other comics and commercial accounts. After I would pay my 20 assistants and the studio expenses, there would be little money left over. At times, Pete and I had to pay our workers out of our own pockets, which no one ever thanked us for. At my peak in the 40s, I made barely $200 a week. All scripts were supplied by Fawcett. They were written by writers Otto Binder, William Woolfolk, and others under supervision of editors Will Lieberson and Wendell Crowley, one of the greatest editors of the Golden Age. Wendell carried on the conception of Captain Marvel as one of the characters in a story, not as a huge superhero striking poses and showing off his powers for no reason. One day when I was at the Fawcett editorial offices, a delegation of African Americans marched into Will Lieberson's office to denounce, in strident tones, our Negro character in Captain Marvel Comics, Steamboat. He shambles and he is stupid, they declared. He's a servant and people laugh at him. As members of a minority, we demand that something be done about this character. After the protesters left, Will, along with editorial director Ralph Digg, quickly killed off the character in fear of losing sales. The same week, Ralph found himself faced with an angry reader in his office who wanted to know why Captain Marvel villain Dr. Savannah's middle name was Bodog. My name is Bodog, the man said. It's a fine old Bulgarian name. Why are you making fun of it? We're not, Ralph said smoothly. Actually, my middle name is Bodog. I authorize its use in our comics. The man went away satisfied while Ralph chuckled to himself. Sometimes a joke is better when not shared. Once I was busy at my drawing board when Ralph brought one of our advisory board members to look in over my shoulder. I happened to be drawing a villain at the moment. The advisor wasn't too happy when she saw my work. Why do you always draw the villains with such big noses, he, she asked. Because our heroes always have small noses, I explained. It makes it easier for the readers to tell them apart. Humph, the advisor snorted and stomped away with her rather large nose in the air. Like Queen Victoria, whom she resembled, she was not amused. Editor and writer Rod Reed, who had written many amusing Captain Marvel scripts, had a joker wisecrack ready to fit any situation. When Rod was drafted, he quit his job at Fawcett. He came back to say goodbye to the staff and cracked a joke. Nobody laughed. You're not our boss anymore, said one of the workers. Last week we had to laugh at your jokes, but now we don't. Roger Fawcett, one of the four Fawcett brothers who ran Fawcett Publications, was in the art department one day eating a nut candy bar around lunchtime. I went to lunch, leaving an unfinished drawing of Captain Marvel on my desk. When I came back, Roger was gone, but on my drawing he had carefully placed two small nuts in Captain Marvel's crotch before leaving. We had no censors in the old days. We didn't need them. We knew good taste from bad, we, but we couldn't help rubbing some people's fur backwards. Some people are so filled with guilt and feelings of inferiority that everything offends them. Captain Marvel Jr. artist Mac Reboy bitterly resented the fact that he had to work in comics for a living. He felt that comics were degrading and that poor people were always being oppressed by the rich. Look, Mac, the sun is shining today, I once sent to him. It's only shining on the rich people, Mac growled. Mac did laugh on occasion. Once, the Captain Marvel staff artists were working up against a tight deadline and Mac offered to give us a hand. In a few minutes, he was chuckling to himself as he worked. Suddenly, he broke into laughter. This is fun, he roared. 
I never knew that comic stories could be so funny. While I was in charge of supervising all Captain Marvel art, the other Fawcett characters that I had no control over did not fare as well. The artists who handled them insisted on drawing them as superheroes with their muscles bulging out in skin-tight costumes and doing nothing in particular. They were put into outlandish poses, contorted positions which showed off their crotches and buttocks. In the past, I have tried, usually quite unsuccessfully, to point out that Captain Marvel was not your average run-of-the-mill superhero. I drew him as always doing something. I never liked superhero comics, and I still don't. They always seemed to me to be the work of amateurs. Captain Marvel was not a superhero. He was just the world's mightiest mortal. When others tried to make a superhero out of him, he became another flying, super-muscled, unbelievable monstrosity and just indistinguishable from all the others. 1945 was the peak year of the Golden Age. Comic books were selling by the millions, but nobody was getting rich in the comic business. Production costs had quadrupled. Publishers had sued each other, and there were more lawyers and accountants in the comic business than there were artists and writers. My page rate was not a penny higher in 1945 or in 1953 than it had been back in 1940. After World War II, comics went downhill rapidly, with publishers dying off like flies. Soon after Captain Marvel appeared on the comic stands and began outselling the other titles, Superman's publishers board lost due to stop him. I suppose I should have been flattered. Cecil B. DeMille once said that when he produced a flop movie, nobody bothered him. But when he produced a big hit, half a dozen people sued him the next morning. Work at Fawcett went on as usual. Publishers are always bringing suit against each other. All big companies have staff lawyers whose business it is to fight other big company staff lawyers. As usual in matters of law, only people who knew absolutely nothing about the subject in question were heard. The judge knew nothing about comics, and the lawyers knew even less. The whole sick affair went on and on until 1953, when Fawcett discontinued all of their comics. Without a word of explanation, the entire comic department was dismantled and scattered to the wind. I could see hints beforehand that Fawcett comics were on their way out. Editor-in-chief Will Lieberson called Otto Binder and me into his office. Following Will's orders, Otto had written a script filled with meaningless action and elaborate, decorative settings which had nothing to do with the story. Why didn't you follow Otto's script, Will asked me. Because it was full of junk, I answered. We didn't used to have meaningless scripts, why start now? Orders, Will said. All the other comic books are being done, written that way now. We have to follow the trend. Uh-oh, I said to myself. When Captain Marvel starts imitating others, he must be on his way out. Another sure indication that Captain Marvel was dying was the way my staff of artists began to dwindle down. During the war years, Pete Costanza and I had a couple of dozen people working under us, but in the 50s, Pete and I were handling everything ourselves. Eventually, Pete was not needed anymore, and I did all the drawing at home, with young Jack Bowler as assistant. Finally, Fawcett telephoned me and said it was all over. I went to see art director Al Allard, who gave me a letter of recommendation, wished me luck, and sent me packing. The Golden Age was over. The Golden Age, which hadn't been too golden for me, came to an end in 1953. I was Fawcett's first and last comic book artist. Once more penniless, but now with a wife and two children, I moved to Florida and tried to forget the whole business. I bought a small restaurant and a bar in Miami called the Ukulele Cafe. Once again, I was washing dishes, waiting on customers, cooking and cleaning toilets, just as I had long ago. 
I played my guitar and sang to the customers. All this time, I had never told anyone that I'd been the artist for Who Drew Captain Marvel. My place became quite popular, and I seemed to be doing well, but the profits were very small. After I realized I was making less than $10 a week for a 60- or 70-hour week, I sold the place and looked for a job in an art studio. I found one, doing ad paste up and an illustration now and then, which my boss took credit for. My boss was Russ Smiley, a big, bluff, two-fisted character who was fond of hunting, fishing, drinking, and women. Smiley was happy to let me take over the drudgery work, which he himself hated. In a year or two, he turned over all of his commercial accounts to me. The commercial art business was miserable. The clients were small businessmen who knew nothing about art, but always knew what they wanted. What they wanted was to never spend any money. They had me running from printer to printer to get lower prices on the catalogs and brochures I designed and illustrated for them. They never wanted to pay for any artwork or copy. The printers always throw those things in for free, they said. Anyway, everybody knows you artists can bat out drawings in no time at all. You can't charge me for such stuff. Disgusted with the art business, I tried to get a job working the counter at a food chain restaurant, but I was told I was too old. My wife had to go to work in a factory warehouse to make ends meet. Those were black years. I became a freelance artist. My work consisted of everything from oil paintings to tool catalogs to color renderings for real estate developments to sign making. I sent some single panel cartoon samples to various syndicates, but they were all rejected. Any mention of my past work experience at Fawcett became pointless. The crowning blow came when the IRS decided to go after artists. Before then, freelance artists had not been forced to pay sales tax on their work. A tax inspector came to my home and spent three days silently going over my records from the past few years. Finally, the inspector spoke. I can't understand how a man with your talent can make so little money, but I figure you owe us $3,000 in back taxes. Pay up or go to jail. I paid. After that, I had to collect and send in sales taxes every quarter. I found myself spending more time keeping books than drawing, and I began to wonder if my father's preacher friends hadn't been right, would they advise that I should study accounting instead of art? When things were at their blackest, a strange thing happened in late 1966. Will Lieberson, former Fawcett Comics editor during the Golden Age, decided to put out his own comic books. Will, his brother, and two others got together some money and hired Otto Bender and myself to write and draw Fat Man, the human flying saucer. It almost seemed like the early 40s all over again. For a while, Fat Man was written and drawn in the old humorous style of Captain Marvel stories. It might have been a tremendous hit, but Will and his partners had forgotten to make arrangements to have their magazines distributed. Fat Man went out of existence after just three issues. Somewhere out there is a warehouse full of old Fat Man comics rotting away. I continued working out of my home in Miami as the sole employee of the C.C. Beck Studio of Design and Art. Twenty years after Captain Marvel was killed off, I got a call from Superman's publisher. They were reviving Captain Marvel in a new book called Shazam and wanted me to submit samples of my artwork in competition with some other artists with whom they were considering. This seemed somewhat silly to me. I had not had to submit samples of my work since I had first appeared as a callow youth at Fawcett's door 40 years earlier. In response, I simply sent Carmen Infantino a drawing of Captain Marvel as Rip Van Winkle with a long white beard, a rusted musket, and a look of wonder on his face. 
The DC people all love the drawing. They responded by sending me, sending me a couple of poorly written scripts. I drew them up. They love them. The first issue of Shazam had a badly garbled retelling of Captain Marvel's origin, with many new false elements added. The entire story was just filled with people standing around talking. Captain Marvel did nothing at all. The other news stories were equally sophomoric. Captain Marvel had become a bulging collection of muscles with all the personality and appeal of a bag of cement. They had the Marvel family running around, cracking bum jokes, and generally making big fat idiots of themselves. They sent me some more scripts. Each one was worse than the one before. I drew those up as well, trying not to wince too much. After I'd drawn about a half a dozen issues, I received two scripts that were so completely worthless that I refused to illustrate them. I returned them. The following week, I went to New York as a guest of honor at a comic convention. While there, I was not cordially greeted by DC. It seems I had forced them to call on other artists to draw the stories I had recently returned to them. I had upset their huge sausage grinder, which turned out comic books as mindlessly as a robot. Before I left New York, DC graciously offered me the opportunity to submit my own stories and to illustrate them per their approval. Upon returning to Florida, I sent DC a script I had written about six months later that was returned to me completely rewritten in DC style, filled with flying figures, heroic poses, and meaningless mob scenes. All the villains and other interesting characters had been removed. I sent it back, saying that I wanted nothing to do with it. I have never been asked to do any work for DC since. Fat Man and Shazam did me some good after all. It brought me into the public's eye, and suddenly I was a celebrity. I was flooded with phone calls and letters by people who wanted to interview and meet me. A legion of mostly young comic fans had started. Their guru in the Miami area was G.B. Love, a comic fanzine publisher who invited me to his conventions, where I met other artists, writers, comic dealers, and fans of all ages. In the Golden Age, all the fan letters that came from Captain Marvel's readers were kept in the editorial department, as it was felt that there was no reason to share the comments from readers with the artists. As a result, I never really knew how many people had seen and loved my work. The people who had read Captain Marvel as a child were now grown up and wanted to meet the people who had produced their favorite heroes and villains. At last, both artists and writers who were not able to sign their work in the 40s found themselves receiving a bit of attention after the years they had spent in obscurity. After the collapse of the Golden Age, Comics had become so poorly written and drawn that the old comics from the 40s were, in contrast, very good. Young fans, such as Paul Hammerlink and others, found Golden Age comics exciting and delightful after having read the current crop of comics. Older fans, such as Bernie McCarty, founder of FCA, Fawcett Collectors of America fanzine, who originally grew up with the 40s comic books, obtained the comics they once had as children and they never expected to ever see again. Whatever recognition I have today is due to the fans. I have learned more from them than they have ever learned from me, I'm sure. In the Golden Age, comics were looked on as rather disgraceful things, just a step or two removed from pornography. Our publishers were ashamed of us and were embarrassed at the popularity of our work. If publishers in my day had listened to us common people, the Golden Age might not have ended so disastrously. But in those days, publishers paid no attention to us slaves putting, pulling the oars. We were just nameless nobodies, beneath contempt. And the artists were the lowest of all, because everyone knew that artists are no good bums. 
I've had a long life, but not an easy one. The big difference between my life and times and today's prospects for artists is that in my day, artists, especially preachers' sons who took off art, were never expected to amount to much. And that was C.C. Beck, 6-8-1910 to November 22nd, 1989, when he passed, and C.C. Beck was elected to the Will Eisner Hall of Fame in 1993. So that is C.C. Beck's life in his own words. Uh, it's funny that, well, interesting that we caught him at a reflective point when he didn't necessarily have uh, total all positive things to say, but when you spent as much time as he did doing it, I guess you really are, are free to say whatever the heck you want. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I know it was a little on the long side, but there's no way I would ever want to uh, truncate the words from the uh, man himself. Uh, if you want to write to us, or write to me about this or whatever is on your mind, you can contact us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon, which is making shows like this, and Chris's Chris and Infinite Earths, which airs every other Monday, op- every other Wednesday opposite this show. Check us out at patreon.com, Chris and Reggie. Uh, see if you want to donate to us. See us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. And we're on Instagram and Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie, and you see our show site is weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. And, of course, you search Weird Comics History on YouTube, and you never know what you might turn up. But I think I've gone long enough this week, and uh, next time I will have mm, something shorter for you, I think. I think that's only fair. So until then, class dismissed. Life is beautiful. Yes, you can.